Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, welcome to Bridge Church again. I'm Russell Berry. I'm teaching pastor here, and uh, we have been going through a series called Searching for Me, looking at the question of identity, specifically through the lens of the book of Ephesians in the Bible. Now, since we last spoke, a couple things have changed in my life. I am now a seminary student. That, that's happened. Yes, it's been amazing, right? And I'm actually, one of the classes I'm taking right now is Pauline epistles. Those are all of the letters of Paul in the New Testament. And so when I was given this text, right, in Ephesians to go in, I'm like, oh, yes, because I've been digging in deep. So this might be one in which you want to take some notes in because the, the clip is fully loaded right now. And I'm excited about it. Another thing that happened is a month ago today, I was in South Africa. Yes, I was in the land of Wakanda forever, and it was beautiful. And a couple things I discovered and experienced immediately upon being in South Africa, because at JFK, there was concern that the plane might not ever fly out because there was a winter warning at that time. There was heavy snow in different places. It was a frigid 20 degrees here. But oh, when I got and landed in the Cape Town, 80 degrees, beautiful sunny day. See, being in South Africa meant a change in the weather, but it wasn't just the weather that changed as well. I remember getting off the plane and in the airport, and I started hearing languages that I hadn't heard before. Started hearing Osa, and I learned how to do the click too, you know what I mean, over there. But see, that's that language which we see in here in Black Panther is actually, uh, many people speak there, but there are 11 different languages that are official languages in South Africa. And so I started hearing different things. People spoke different. Another thing I noticed is that people actually drive on a different side of the road. And I remember the first time I was in the car when somebody made a right turn that looked like a left, felt like a left turn. And I was like, holding like, Lord, what's going on? I'm trying to push the brake in the passenger seat because the passenger seat feels like I'm in the driver's seat. It was just all very confusing. And I'm like, this is a different place. But even how people perceived me was different. I mean, they would see and, you know, go, okay, this looks like a South African, but then I start talking, and they go, ah, you're an American, aren't you? Because, see, my accent sounded so different over there than the way people spoke. And the key point is that your identity is often shifted and defined by your geographical location, right? I was in South Africa, and in South Africa, a primary part of my identity was being an American. And in the same way, when we look at this identity issues that we're talking about and searching for our own sense of identity, we don't realize how much being in Christ, as Paul talks about, is very key to understanding who we are as Christians. So today we're going to look at the question of our identity in Christ. And this is foundational for understanding everything about a new identity if you are a follower of Jesus. A.W. Tozer 
put it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a second. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How many times, I remember having these conversations, right, where I'm, I'm sharing my faith or I'm, I'm just kind of talking about my journey, and somebody's like, oh, well, I could never be a Christian because, I mean, you know, your God is angry and vengeful and, and, and racist and sexist, and I'm like, that ain't who I talk to. I don't know who you're talking to, but that's, that's not my God. Like, so, but because of that idea and because of that perspective, it causes the person to reject God and think they have to therefore come to conclusions about what is true and the meaning of life and morality on their own. But some people actually decide to say, you know what, because of that, I, there is no God. I don't believe in God. And they embrace a, a secular humanism as a perspective on life. And even still, that is the most important thing in trying to define how they answer the big questions of life. Because you see, if there is no reality, if there is no morality that is defined for us, that is, has been revealed to us, then that means I get to define it myself, which means, therefore, that I get to work truth out based on how I personally see is right. It matters how we see God. It is absolutely important. And specifically, this phrase, in Christ, appears over 200 times throughout the 13 letters that we have recorded in the Bible that Paul has written. This term is essential and foundational for understanding who we are mystically, who we are in our Christology, that is the study of Christ, our ecclesiology, the study of the church, our eschatology, the study of the last things, in every single foundational reality, don't worry, we're going to get into that some more, this idea of being in Christ is key. In fact, this is why we see it in the very first two sentences in the letter. The first, letters, uh, the first word says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Paul says, wait, this is my identity. I, I mean, apostle, that means a sent one. I'm a sent one of Christ by God's will. This is how I got here. I got here by being connected to the will of God. Now, that might not mean a whole lot, and oftentimes we can kind of just skip past these intro verses to try to get into the meat of what the letter is about. But when you start to know the backstory of Paul, this begins to make so much difference. So we're going to take a little bit of a, a journey into Paul's story from attacker to apostle. Just journey with me real quick. I'm just trying to set up the context for how we even go into and read the, uh, this uh, book of Ephesians and why it matters so much. So Paul tells his story and his testimony various ways throughout the New Testament. I'm just gonna pick one. In Philippians chapter three, he talks about his identity this way. He says, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. 
Now, so you see, there was a controversy in this church uh, of Philippi at the time, and people were basically saying, you know what? I get my identity and worth from my actions, right? Because I am a righteous person and I do righteous things, that is what justifies me. And Paul is saying, oh, you want to play that game? Well, if we want to play that game, I can show you my resume and, you know, it's going to actually outstrip yours, right? And he said, let me, let me just show you where I come from since we're talking about this thing. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, what that means is he's saying that not only am I Jewish, but I come from good family. My family knew how to raise me right. They knew that the law said that first I should be circumcised because I'm a Jewish boy and that it should be done on the eighth day. Those are my people. But then he goes on and say, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's like, look, I'm not just these one of these folks that can be like vaguely, you know, like, you know, I think I got some Indian in me, like on my mama's side, like back in the day. He's like, no, 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 no. I know the nation and I know the tribe, tribe of Benjamin, a noble tribe. When you look at the history of Israel, he's like, yeah, a Hebrew born among Hebrews. I'm not an Oreo. I was raised in the Jewish context. I'm real Jewish with mine. He says, regarding the law, a Pharisee said, oh, just don't get it. I'm not just resting on my laurels here. Like, I not just am proud of where I come from because of my heritage, but I'm also proud of what I have personally done. He said, regarding the law, a Pharisee, the Pharisees were the most strict sect in Judaism. They meticulously followed the law to the point where they would actually uh, strain out their tea to make sure, like, so they would make tea and then they would get a strainer and pour the tea through the strainer into a cup to make sure that there was no fly that got into the tea because flies were unclean and they didn't eat or drink unclean things, even by accident. He said, I was a Pharisee. Oh yeah, regarding zeal. And he was like, oh, and don't get it twisted. Just in case you think I'm one of those people with like Twitter fingers that just like talk a good game online, but like in the, in the streets ain't really about that life. I was about that life. He said, regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. We took it out in the streets. And if I saw anybody doing what I thought was blaspheming the name of God, I held them to account, arresting them. And even in Acts chapter seven, we see him approving the stoning of Stephen the first Christian martyr. He's like, yeah, I was about that life. And regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So that's my resume. Then he turns the corner and says, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a lost because of Christ. He said, all of that stuff that I just described, I now look at as only through the lens of to the extent that it prevents me from getting closer to Jesus, I am disappointed by it. He's not saying that I'm ashamed of my heritage. Don't get it twisted. See, even his name, Saul, was his birth name, right? Like that was the name that his mama gave him. But then oftentimes with people that live that are like kind of like in two different cultures at the same time, that they also have a, a, a kind of more public version of their name so that they, people can pronounce it and say it. Like I had this friend, he was a Chinese dude. And when it, I first met him, he, you know, he said, hey, my name is Scott. And I was like, cool, what's up, Scott? And then, like, he got woke. And then he was like, yo, man, that's, the, that's my slave master name. See, that's the name that the white man gave me. Call me Xiang En. And I was like, word, Xiang En, got it. He was like, yeah, you're just going to have to struggle with pronouncing it because that's my name. And I was like, word. But his name is, like, Xiang En Scott. But, like, he's like, no, I'm, I'm Xiang En now. And so there's this aspect of the cultural identity and the physical. And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm keeping that. But I no longer put pride in that as the essential core of my identity. 
Now it's in Christ. But then the question is, well, how did that happen? And the amazing thing is he records it in several different accounts. It's in Acts chapter 9. He talks about it, though, in Acts chapter 26. And the simple version, the short version, the abbreviated version, is that he was on his way to go persecute some more Christians. He was in Jerusalem. He was heading to Damascus. He heard that there was like some underground church happening, and there were some people that were worshiping Jesus there. And he was like, yo, Pharisees, let me go get them. You know that's what I do, right? And they was like, cool, yeah, let's go get Paul. That dude crazy. Like, he going to really get him. So he's on his way to Damascus with his crew. You know, they got their tools, their weapons, they strapped, and they're about to go get some Christians. And then in the midst of that, it says he sees this blinding light, and the blinding light causes him to fall to the floor, and he can't see around him, and he hears this voice. Now, I, I know we're in New York, but I want to ask you to close your eyes for a second. Just kind of cl- clutch your purse. Nobody's going to take nothing. But just to, to get a sense of what Paul is dealing with here, just, just close your eyes for a few moments and just hear this. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he hears the voice say, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And in this moment, changes everything about his life. Now, the fascinating thing about the question is, Notice what Jesus says. First of all, he calls him by his ethnic name. He says, Saul. Saul, Saul, he asks, why are you persecuting me? Anybody peep that? This is, Jesus wasn't anywhere around physically when Paul was arresting Christians and and approving of their deaths and their murders. But notice that Paul, he doesn't hear Jesus say, Why are you persecuting them? He doesn't even hear him say, why are you persecuting us? Which that would feel like connection. But as he's on his way to Damascus, he hears the question, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his body to be in Christ is to be a part of him. He asked the question, why are you persecuting me? And notice Paul's response in the question, he responds back, who are you, Lord? <laughs> Wait, you mean to tell me the dude with all that resume, circumcised on the eighth day and a Pharisee and like all that study you did, all that learning you did. And when you, the voice of God speaks to you directly, you're like, who is this? And many of us know that experience because you were raised in church. You know the rhythm and the routine. You know what to say when somebody says, how you doing? Blessed and highly favored. You know what I mean? I'm blessed, you know? Like, you know the lingo, but you know about Jesus. <laughs> but many of us know that when we came to actually know Jesus, it was a lot later, if at all. And that's a lot different to know about someone than to know them. He says, who are you, Lord? The other reason why is because the God that revealed himself is much different than the way Paul acts. You see, Paul was literally on his way. His reaction to when somebody disobeyed God to blaspheme God was to go persecute them. Meanwhile, God's reaction when he realizes why you're persecuting me is to ask him a question. He ain't throwing him in chains. He's not murdering him. He's asking him questions. He's like, yo, this is different. Why are you persecuting me? But look at what Jesus says next. This is what he tells him. 
I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He gives Paul his mission statement, his new life goal. He says, okay, I am sending you. That's what apostle means. I am sending you. This is why he defines himself as an apostle to open their eyes. This is the funny part. Notice he just said, I am sending you. Like the reason why you're on this road is actually to do my will. (laughs) And this is kind of fun because he's on his road to actually arrest Christians. But you know, God has this way of you are going someplace to do your dirt, like you got all dressed that night before and you was about to turn out the place and then something happens on the way and what you thought you were doing to get away from God and his conviction actually draws you right to the point of ministry opportunity. Okay, some of y'all don't know what what I'm talking about. All right, so I remember this time, right? I was in college and I was like, you know, this Christian life is real stifling. I'm about to go do my thing, go to this club, do my thing, right? So I go to this party, right? You know what I mean? Everybody's turned up, they drink and doing their thing, right? And I'm like, word, I'm here. But I'm like, eh, I don't really want, let me go sit down real quick. So I sit down and I see this young lady and she's looking kind of sad. And I'm like, hey, what's, you know, what's going on? What's wrong? And then she starts to telling me about all these issues that are happening in her life. And I'm like listening to her issues. And before I know it, like an hour and a half goes by and I'm like doing ministry right there at the party. And I'm like, dang, you can't take me nowhere. Even when I'm trying to get away, like I'm still in the midst of doing things. And, and so many of us can have that experience. He's like, I'm sending you. Oh, you think you're there to do this? <laughs> many of us thought, oh, I ain't, I'm going to college. I'm going to break that thing wide open. And Jesus was like, oh, I'm sending you to be a light. So he says power he's to, to, to release them, to turn them from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness and the share among those. And, and, and I highlight those three things because that is what we're going to be talking about during our time. But when you think about this experience that Paul has, right, this, this meaning, this significance of what it meant to be in Christ in his life, then we can understand why in the first two verses of Ephesians, it continues on to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. At Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that phrase is not just some throwaway preposition, but is absolutely essential to understanding what Paul is saying is true about them. We're going to answer three questions about what it means to be in Christ and our identity in Christ. The first is, why do we need to be in Christ? The second, what does it mean to be in Christ? And then lastly, How do we get to be in Christ? All right, so the first one, why do we need to be in Christ? Now, Paul deals with this throughout his letters in different ways, but one of the most clear, simple explanations that we see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. He writes this, For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Now, he essentially breaks down human history into two significant moments. The first one is creation. We know that in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, it said that God spoke 
said, let there be light, and there was. Created water, created skies, created land, created all the animals. And then on the sixth day of creation, things change drastically. And all of a sudden, we see God not speaking like he did with the fish and the animals and the land, but actually crafting humanity with his hands. It said, let us make man in our likeness and our image, male and female, he created them. And then he gives them instructions like nothing else in creation. He says, now you will go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And that is the mandate that he gave Adam and Eve. And what we see in the beginning is a complete harmony with all the elements of life. We see a picture of God walking in the garden with his creation, with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in perfect peace. We see Adam's reaction when he sees Eve for the first time and the brother breaks out in the song. He sees her and goes, whoa, man. Woman, word. And essentially, <laughs> I'm saying, I mean, he, literally, when you see his reaction, he breaks out in the song. And you see, he tells them to get, he has work for them to do in the garden and throughout, and they're supposed to flourish. But before we can even fully embrace and enjoy the picture, Genesis chapter 3 happens, sin enters the world. They rebel against God, and all of a sudden, everything changes. Now they're sowing fig leaves, and they're hiding from God, no longer walking with him. Now when God confronts them about the sin, Adam, the same one who was just singing the song before, is now saying, this woman is the blame who you gave me. Now, instead of having a sense of flourishing with the creation and being fruitful and subduing the earth, now it will resist him, thorns and thistles. And from that point on, we continue to see the degradation and the disintegration of the creation that God wanted. This is what it's like in Adam, all die. You know, probably a movie that helps me to picture this really well came out a long time ago called The Matrix. Now, The Matrix came out 20 years ago. So I'm going to tell you what happens in it. And if this is spoiler alert, then that's just on you. You missed it. You had two decades. Yeah, some of y'all are tripping like, nah, not 20 years ago. March 31st, 1999. That's when it was released. But here's the thing, the Matrix, um, I just made a lot of people feel old, but that's all right. We're going to get over it. I felt the same way. Welcome to the club. But in the Matrix, this was basically the bottom line. First of all, it borrows from a lot of Christian themes, right? Like you have Trinity, who's the female person in it. You have Neo, who's supposed to be this prophesied Messiah who's going to save the world, right? Who only does it after he dies and comes back to life. Yo, God is in heaven. Like, where are my royalties at, first of all? You know what I'm saying? Like... <laughs> I'm saying, you're going to put my name on this? But in any case, beyond that, the, the, it captured the imagination, not only because it was groundbreaking in its technology at the time, but also because it kind of posed this question or it spoke to this truth in a really creative way. In the movie, basically the machines had decided, became self-aware and instead of serving humans, decides to make humans their slaves. Because, you know, everybody produces electricity, and so they decide, yo, you know what? Instead of just plugging into the wall, let's plug into some human beings. 
But in order to prevent a rebellion, they keep the humans into this comatose kind of dream state in which they allow the humans to think that they have an identity that they don't really have. They allow the humans to think that they're living a life that is all a lie so that they can continue to keep them in bondage. Some of you see the spiritual truth behind this reality. What it's saying is that, look, the things that you think define who you are, your career, your relationships, your pedigree, your background, all the things that Paul said was what he built his reputation on are all just an illusion and not really real. That don't really make you who you are because at any moment those things can be taken away from you. But ultimately, he's saying there's a deeper truth. But in that truth, you have to realize you have to unplug from the matrix and then see life as it really is, even though it's uglier, even though it's darker, even though it's not as pretty as you would like. And so what Paul is saying is that in the real world, we are in Adam and the world is kind of going more closer and closer to destruction, but there's such a thing of being in Christ and that changes everything. So our spiritual location is either in our fallen state in Adam or in our redeemed state in Christ. There's no neutral ground. This is, these are the two options that we have in life. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ? So we see, we've established why it's important. He's saying it's everything. There were two moments in human history, the creation and then the recreation when Jesus comes and redeems everything. But what does it mean? We're going to break this down. Well, first, I'm going to tell you my story because this is like I mentioned. It's funny when, you know, Pastor James was, you know, you see the picture with him and his family and he's the third and there's the second and the first. And, you know, I'm like, oh, that's really dope. And I'm, I'm really genuinely grateful for his legacy that he gets to be a part of. But the reality is that's not my story at all. You see, I never have it such an intergenerational picture because most of my family are so split that they don't even talk to each other anymore. I used to lament the fact that we never had a family reunion until I started to hear the stories that they told with each other and realized if we had a family reunion, there would be a body bag involved. Like legit, there's just deep, deep divisions. But in that generational problem, that third and fourth generation thing that uh, Pastor James talked about, definitely even infiltrated in my own personal, uh, you know, close family situation. My parents broke up when I was two. My dad was murdered when I was six. I grew up just with my older brother and myself. My mom had him when she was 18, me when she was 20. And the reality was, she was so desirous for us to kind of have a new opportunity and a new situation that even though she couldn't afford private school, she decided to take the, you know, the, the most difficult decision that she had made, she tells me, and actually put us in a boarding school that was free for us. And that meant, though, that she couldn't see us on a day-to-day basis. And this picture is a picture of when I, you know, first, my, like, first day at this school, and she's there And that marked a whole new journey for me in my life because when she left, (laughs) like mom, the one that, you know, I knew loved me unconditionally also left. And when that door closed and I found myself in this room with all these other kids who had known each other for years prior to this because most of the kids came in in first and second grade because of the situations that were in their family. But here I am several years later. On top of that, I'm the shortest kid in the class unathletic, 
unpopular, uncool, and very much rejected on a lot of different ways. And so I spent the next nine years of life trying to get this sense of acceptance and continuing to fail with the women, with the guy. It just was just failure all across the board. Until things started to get a little bit better my senior year in high school. You know, senior year kind of finally started to get some traction. Kind of my thing was academics. So, you know, I was senior National Honor Society, was voted senior class president, ran unopposed, but still, they voted for me. I got some votes. <laughs> Full honesty here. But ultimately, you know what I mean, I was feeling good about myself. And then when prom season came around, you know what I mean, it was like, hey, hey, Papa's got a brand new bag. So then I, I encountered a situation where two uh, girls liked me at the same time, which for me was like a uncharted territory. This had never happened before. And, but one was in the school and the other was not, and this was a boarding school. So I was like, hey, you know, how about I try to do the thing of having both at the same time, you know? And uh, so I try to be a player. But when you try to be a player and you have no game, you get caught. <laughs> so I get caught, and I remember the girl asked me, she said, um, are you cheating on me? And I said, yeah. And she said, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's not what players do? That's, players don't do that. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I was really bad at it. But I remember what she said. She said, you know, you're no better than other guys. In fact, you're worse because you think you're better than them. And it was like somebody took a rock and threw it through this distorted image of who I was and everything shattered. And I was literally depressed because I really thought that I was like better than everybody. Like I was a good guy. I was a good person. So in this state, I was like, man, I don't know what to do. So I confessed to the other girl. And, <laughs> oh, players don't do that. I didn't know. And I remember, she, I was like, yeah, so this is what happened. I'm sorry. And she said, I forgive you. And I was like, hmm? <laughs> Why? And i never forget. She said, well, Jesus forgave me for everything that I did, so I don't want to hold it against you. And I had no idea what she was talking. I was like, well, all I knew was I, was getting, I wasn't getting those hands. So I was like, this is good. I'm like, tell me more. And in that moment, I learned a few things that we're going to get into with First, I learned that in Christ, we are freed from the penalty of sin. Paul puts it this way in verse 6. He says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. This incredible thing happens where it says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is a scandalous verse that would be just completely ridiculous if it wasn't God himself who said it. He says that in, on the cross, God took out the punishment on him that we deserved and that in exchange for not only does, did he get our punishment, but we get his righteousness by faith. So that now God sees us with the righteousness of God. That's how forgiveness works. Secondly, in Christ, we are freed from the presence of sin. 
In the fifth verse of Ephesians chapter one, he says, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. We talked about this already, so I'm not gonna get too deep into this in the previous messages that we've talked about adoption, but the basic idea is what it means is that God is saying, I've adopted you into my family, and as a result of that, you don't have to be around the dysfunction of sinfulness and brokenness around you. You can actually be in a place where it moves you toward righteousness. Anybody ever been in a situation where you weren't trying to do the wrong thing, but some other people were trying to do the wrong thing around you, and you just got caught up? I mean, that's part of the presence of sin. But then not only that, he says, in Christ, we are free from the power of sin. You see, in Adam, we kind of can't help ourselves. We, we, we kind of just can't get right. Like we just kind of get this place where even when we want to, the things that are our deepest desires, they overcome us. But in Christ, he says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. And so therefore you can overcome sin. Oh, some of y'all didn't get that. Cause if you did, you'd be shouting. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is no temptation that is uh, too difficult for you to overcome in Christ. There is no situation that through Christ's power you cannot overcome. That's what it means to be in Christ. And then lastly, in creation, we are a new. In Christ, we are a new creation. He's like, we're not just defined by what happened to us as it relates to sin, but we're defined by something totally new that is now our new identity. It says new creation in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. It doesn't matter what they used to call you, whether they used to call you a thug, whether they used to call you a hoe, whether they used to call you smart aleck, whether they used to call you deadbeat, whatever it was in Christ, he gives you a new name and a new identity and says, you are a new creation in me. Everything that happened that got reversed in Adam now flips and gets strengthened in Christ. Now, some of you are like, yeah, that sounds amazing, but that's not my reality. I believe I'm a Christian but I still don't feel like I'm still surrounded by the presence of sin. If you get on the subway at about midnight, you see we are still surrounded by the presence of sin. That's what, yo, for real, in New York, when I moved here, I realized why the song The Freaks Come Out at Night, like, happened. Like, it looks like a whole different city at night. You're like, whoa, like, midnight, one o'clock? You're like, I did not know. It's like Night of the Living Dead sometimes. So here's the last truth that helps us what it means about being in Christ. (laughs) And that is being in Christ is both an already reality and a not yet reality. Here's an important part, right? So we see this experience in our own government system. You see, we have elections the first week of November, the first Tuesday of November. And we all go and we vote for a senator, a congressperson, president. And we usually know the results of that election by the next day. But whenever we refer to that person and whenever you see the news media refer to that person who gets elected, they will refer to her as congresswoman-elect. They will refer to him as senator-elect, or they might refer to her as president-elect. I'm just prophesying. They keep going. So in any case, um, regardless of what it is, it's person-elect. 
And the reason why they say that is because even though they've been chosen, they are not yet inaugurated. Their administration hasn't yet started because they haven't been sworn in. There's another moment that happens that when it happens in January and then they swear on the Bible and they say, yes, I solemnly swear to live out these uh, oaths and, and protect the country and all of that. And that is when they are actually, the elect gets drafted and they're actually in a position of authority and power. And what happens in Jesus is that he says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The, his kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not yet fully realized. When we see the resurrection, we see the aspect of like it has started. We, we, we start to see that resurrection power in us. Even as Christians, we, we have victories in our lives, but it's still not fully realized. But when he comes back, the inauguration happens and he completely reigns and rules. And what was almost completely finished, becomes totally consummated and done. We get new bodies, we go home and be with Jesus forever. That's the already and the not yet. And in between, we live in the tension. And we live in that tension. So sometimes you still feel the consequences of your sin. Sometimes you still feel the defeat, the sting of defeat. And sometimes the presence, even in the church, of sin still lurks its ugly head. But we have the hope of knowing that what was already started and already evidence in us is not yet completed. But that's the hope, right? That's the I will remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. To be in Christ is to be rescued from the power, penalty, and presence of sin and given a new identity with new purpose. Our identity is now founded in who we are in Christ. And it changes everything. It has ethical implications because, you see, being in Christ also means that now the mission of Jesus, the same guy that goes to the murderous person that persecuted him and says, why are you persecuting me? Let's be reconciled. That now we are on that same mission as we go out into the world to see broken, disconnected people who are sinful, proud, and arrogant and see them become at peace with God and with each other. That's our mission now. The same one who still, there's still people in Adam. There's still people that don't get to see it. We don't just pull our finger and look at them. We actually come around them and come close to them and say, here's the good news. There is a king that is still yet on the throne. But how does it happen? How do we get there? How do we get to be in Christ? This is the last point. I'm going to get through quick. The first thing we have to know is we must choose the king to put faith in. Just like Okoye did. And Black Panther. Y'all remember the scene? Killmonger defeats T'Challa, gives him that business, throws him over the cliff, asks the sarcastic rhetorical question that has become in meme history. Is this your king? At the moment, Lupita's character you know, uh, she goes out like, yo, it's time to roll. It's time to bounce. We got to be about the resistance now, sis. And Nikoya is like, well, well, nah, he's the king now. I must serve the person who is the king. These are the rules. This is how it's set up. And over the course of time, as she begins to see the destruction of the current king of this world or king of Wakanda versus this king that has died but has come back to life, 
Then she starts to realize that her allegiances become in question. And the faithful moment happens when she realizes, wait a minute, I can either choose the king that is destroying everything or the king that's going to bring life to everything. And that moment, she says, look, I don't care if my husband is in the way. I don't care if anybody, the rules are in the way. I got to run to the real king and choose him over anything else. That is how we get to the kingdom. This is how Paul puts it in chapter four of Romans. He says, it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What he's saying there is that he's borrowing from the picture of Abraham and he's saying, look, instead of you thinking that righteousness depends on what you do and being a good person, because that's pretty much how most people look at the world. I'm just going to be a good person. I'm just going to do good things. He said, actually, none of your good things can qualify you for God. That ultimately, it is only based on the merits of what he has done for you. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when I put faith in that fact, then that means he actually credits my account, the righteousness that Christ had. That's how it gets activated. Even in our own system of government, that a president can pardon you, but if you do not accept responsibility and admit that you did wrongdoing, you will not get a pardon. It will be credited to you who believe on him, who raised Jesus from the dead. I love how my man Shai Lin put it. He's a rapper. He said, through faith, everything that happened to Christ happened to me. I'm happy to see his majesty adapting me gradually. I'm fabric. He's weaving me into his kingdom's tapestry. Imagine me spitting systematic theology practically. What he's saying there is that through faith, the death of Jesus gets applied to me. Through faith, the resurrection of Jesus gets applied to me. Through faith, all the things that happen to Jesus happen to me, and he's gradually taking me from already to not yet. He's gradually taking me there, and now as a result of that, my identity and my purpose is not just based on my own particular mission and vision for my life, but it's based on me being a thread in the fabric of his kingdom agenda. That's what being in Christ is about. We get to see pictures of this throughout our life. How do we get access to it? Romans 10, 9 puts it this way. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. It's that simple. How do we get in Christ? <laughs> in the matrix, they put it this way. The key moment in the movie is... Neo has to decide if he's going to accept the blue pill or the red pill. The blue pill will take him back to, back to his reality as he saw it, the delusion, the illusion. The red pill will allow him to be part of the resistance and fight the matrix. And we see throughout the journey, some people take the blue and some people take the red. But we have a decision and an opportunity to make. So what is your next step? We have a few opportunities. One, there's baptism coming up here shortly, April 7th, just in a month. And as you're sitting there, you might say, yeah, I, I realized, I never thought about that significance of that uh, symbol of being dead to Christ and being risen with him, how that is a picture of being in union with Christ. And you realize that that's your next step. You might be here and you're not ready yet for that step. You're still exploring this thing. Well, we have an open house coming up in six days, just this coming Saturday, where for a few hours you get to you know, we'll have feed you, give you lunch. We even want to get you there on the way uh, with an Uber code. You'll hear more about that. 
But the point is learning more about what it means to be part of Christ in his community. Our true identity will only be found as we identify with the one who made us in his image and for his purpose. If some of you might be like me, where you get a new device and you just kind of forget about the instructions and you just try to get to the place where you start actively working it out and then you realize you don't know how to make it work or there's some aspects of it that you can't fully realize. So then what do you do? Go back to the owner's manual to figure out how the thing worked because you know the people that made it know how to use it best. God has created us in his image. And he's like, to get back, to to unlock the potential of what you were made and created to be, it takes you coming back into fellowship, into communication, into relationship with the one who designed you. And when you do that, you don't lose identity. This isn't an idea where, like in some beliefs, where it's just like you just kind of get lost. No, no, God is going to keep you in all your swag and all your black girl magic and all your, you know, flyness that you want to keep for the fellas. All of those things get to stay, but they get elevated and redeemed, just like Saul goes to Paul. It's like, you know, I'm going to keep, you can keep Saul, but, but I'm going to give you a bigger vision. I'm going to give you a bigger thing because you're going to get part of being in my fabric. So that's the opportunity we have here today. Well, as you know, each week we um, do something called communion, and we have a couple different options for people to respond, and we're going to do that tonight. And communion is literally a picture that Jesus gave us of what it looks like for us to be in Christ. On the night he was betrayed, he said, take this bread and eat. It is my body. Put me in you. Take this cup. It's pictures of the blood of the new covenant. Drink this blood, this wine. For as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The other piece that we see there is that he's saying that keep doing this until one day you will, that, that, that not yet, that's not there, one day it'll be real. Realize I will be fully with you physically. But in the meantime, come and take this to renew yourself because we still live in a world that's dominated by an Adam. So as the elements come forward right now, we're going to have an opportunity to respond in that way. The second opportunity to respond, and please don't miss this opportunity. There are people in the back that are ready to pray with you. And you are here today and you heard how to go from in Adam and in Christ. And that it is by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised them from the dead and you'll be saved. There are people in the back that'll be willing to make that prayer with you. Just, just, just tell them, I, I, I wanna be in Christ. I wanna be in Christ. That's all you have to say. And they'll tell you and lead you in that way. So would you please rise with me to come receive the elements. You come through the middle aisles and take and come on, on and walk on the outside. And then go in the back. Let me pray, and then we'll experience communion. Father in heaven, thank you for what you've done in allowing us to be in you, for releasing us from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin by making us a new creation. We pray that you would help us live that out as we take these elements, as we go pray. There are people here tonight 
that are wrestling because they want to be in you, but they might be fearing embarrassment or fearing what people may think. Just help them overcome that and press in and just tell somebody in the back, I want to be in Christ. As we worship, let's draw closer to Jesus and be in him. Amen. Please come now. Come forward for the elements. Go to the back and receive prayer. Let's worship. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.